Yes, I am. Sorry, I was just figuring out whether or not I was muted. Yes, That's I am. Fine. I'm a PhD. It's like every Zoom meeting I've been in all week. <laughs> You're on mute. And you get like half the sentence every time. Yeah. Yeah, no, outrageous. You're on mute. Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, everybody. You're listening to Living the Dream, and you're joined here with Dave. Um, and I'm very lucky today to have Anna Sturman on board. Anna, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you going? Oh, yeah. I think we were just chatting before we were recording. Um, it's strange times, isn't yes. it? It is, it is strange times. And that weird mix between... The line that I've been having with everyone is that if it wasn't for the terrifying existential dread, everyday life can be quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interregnum gives us good and bad, right? And maybe we're seeing some of what could be good after it. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I think you're setting the scene for some of the things we wanted to get into. <laughs> I dropped the word so, interregnum early. Yeah, I know. Bam, we're in. <laughs> All right. Um, Anna, so... <laughs> let's let's hear a little who are you let's hear a little bit about you (laughs) okay uh so i am a new zealander obviously from accent who is over here in sydney australia at usid doing my phd uh looking at the political economy of climate change specifically in relation to new zealand and agricultural capital um and while uh over here doing that i managed to find my way into a merry band of leftists who um, who wound up getting involved in Green New Deal type stuff, trying to see how that conversation could work in Australia. And through that, I've got to uh, really hone my knowledge of neo-Marxian state theory, um, which is one of my favourite things to talk about and which is why I'm here today. Look, I will admit you first came onto my radar because of your work with uh, Tash Heenan around the Green New Deal, which was, I think... Um, a particularly radical or to the left of social democratic framing of the Green New Deal, which is you know obviously a concept that's pretty wide open to interpretation and debate. And I wanted to get you on today to both talk broadly about state theory, but you've also recently um, written a piece whose name I've just forgotten again. What was the piece of writing you've just done? Oh, it's called Climate Emergency, COVID-19 and the Australian Capitalist State. And so this really sparks my interest because <laughs> I think um, we're in this moment, mm. this kind of terrifying but potentially transformative moment, though I don't think it's transformative just in and of itself. Absolutely. But it's throwing up, I guess, the challenge of how do you struggle in this period? Mm. If we're in a situation of for health reasons, that we all have to be isolated. Mm. What does that mean? What, what does actual collective political activity mean within that time? So I'm quite interested in the voices, particularly those coming out to deal with the specificity of the Australian situation, mm. attempting to interpret to that. Yeah. Um, because, and also we're really like, you know, you're talking about state theory. We are really in the day of the state right now, aren't we? You know, like yep. <laughs> at, seemingly out of nowhere, as the capitalist economy goes into pause, mm. the state, you know, the 
the state is now policing social interactions far more. The state is compensating all incomes from capital to labor right across the board. Um, how do we, like, so maybe, <laughs> which end do you want to start with, the politics or the state theory? How do we get this? I think it would be worth uh, briefly, briefly discussing the state theories that then we can use that to frame the discussion of the strategic point in time, the conjuncture, and what it could mean for the left and, of course, for other ends of the spectrum. Um, so maybe if we start by briefly just discussing who Nikos Polansis is, as I'm sure you've seen many tweets from me about him and his theory. My, um, my background is in law and political science, and so studying political economy uh, was just a whole new world of things to get my head around. And I remember the day that I first read something written by Nikos Polansis, and I grabbed hold of it was like, this makes sense of everything. He's he's uh, from the tradition of people who've tried to theorize how the base superstructure relation works in Marxian theory. So uh, he first sort of sprung to fame in this, in this looking at the subject matter when he had a series of debates with Miliband the senior about whether the state is instrumentally or structurally inscribed to work in the interests of capital. So Miliband had done the study where he was like, the state can be used by people who aren't affiliated with capital. The state can be used by the left to pursue its agenda, meaning that you can have sort of like a revolution from within the state, or you can achieve revolutionary things from within the state. And Palacios was aligned with Althusser and the structuralists, and in his early work, he was like, hell no, Miliband. What the fuck, man? The state is clearly structurally inscribed to the interests of capital. Uh, and he worked through, um, they had a series of exchanges where they sort of talked past each other really using different pieces of Marx's writing to justify their positions. Anyway, they only got so far with this debate and then it, it just died. It didn't go anywhere. They'd been talking past each other, but it's been sort of the font for people to discuss possible neo-Marxian theories of state ever since. Uh, in his later work, Polansis sort of abandoned the the really basic structuralism of his early work and did some really cool stuff reconceptualizing the state as a material condensate of the class struggle. So what that meant was the the state is not this like empty signifier or this empty thing. It is something that uh, demonstrates at particular conjunctures um, within particular societies how the balance of class struggle has landed over time. And the people who want to move forward, the people who want to strategically navigate the moment are able to focus on particular contradictions or ruptures within the state form where they might be able to advance the leftist cause. So Palancis uh, often got a lot of flack, often got a lot of flack. Palancis got flack for basically treading too close to social democratic ideas of the state and away from sort of, you know, like the core Marxian stuff. But uh, he did some incredible work just really fleshing out the theory of the state form and how we might be able to move past really basic, um, really, really basic ideas of what it could mean for leftist strategy. 
So he, he died young, unfortunately, and his last sort of couple of pieces of work, I think it was State Power Socialism and Classes in Contemporary Capitalism, left a lot of uh, open-ended questions for theorists like myself um, and other people working in the space to come along and be like, right, we've got this whole new outrageous conjuncture to deal with. What could Palancis' idea of the state lend us in terms of strategy, which is how I arrived at writing the piece that I did. So when I got involved in critiques of capitalism, let's call it the left, right? So there, for lack of a better term, right? Um, there, the, the the division we were presented, a kind of intellectual division you presented with, is one between reform or revolution, right? So it's either the state is a tool, we can win elections, um, the state can then carry out a transformative project, and. I think there's often an idea in that that state ownership in and of itself is an alternative to capitalism. Like capitalism here is reduced to market relationships and the state, the public, the common good get kind of collapsed into one. Or there was revolution where essentially the truth of the state is the police, is the jails, is the court. Um, it is a yeah, It is a repressive apparatus and it must be smashed. So and and that kind of guided your basic orientation to what you thought um, was the terrain, what you thought was possible, and how you thought you could act. So does Palancis sit within that reform or revolution divide, or is he framing this in a in a different way? And then what are the implications? Well, he sits right in the middle of that divide. Basically, what he's saying is he spent a lot of time reflecting on uh, different little case studies. They're not little, but different case studies of different conjunctures and what had happened and how different classes navigated them and how the state form was utilised or how it, how it worked on and through the situation. And so what he was saying is revolution, absolutely, but the withering away of the state, you have to be building capacity at the same time. And given how our societies are progressing, you're never going to be able to just wipe away the state infrastructure that currently exists and replace it with a fully formed new set of apparatus. So what you need to do is find ways to basically like search and destroy the weak parts of the current system and replace them with the seeds of future, um, future state forms or future forms of governance that are adequate to full socialism or communism. And so basically the problem is of course, that that is always open to uh, the accusation that it is reformism, that is just trying to make the current system better. And there's definitely, I mean, it's true. That's absolutely true. But what I really like about Palancis' theory is he is trying to find the horizon of the possible and forever like continue pushing it out while being very realistic about how the left can strategically navigate the current moment. And I think that that sort of bringing the twain together is a real strength of his work. So just I want to make sure there's a line I wanted to return to in a moment, but just to make sure that I'm understanding the argument you're putting here correctly. So when you're mm. talking about building kind of the future organisations of the post-capitalist society, which I really think is super important, I think the idea that, mm. you know, you have capitalism, then you have this 
grand day when everyone's all on the streets and then everything is is working well the next day just doesn't really convincingly make sense and yeah. you know that the revolution like there might be insurrections but the revolution is a process on either side of the insurrection right but yeah. but is palancis because an anarchist would say that right an anarchist say, would say we have to develop new forms but is yeah. palancis saying that these new forms can actually happen within the state that we can actually win victories in a capitalist society where parts of the state begin to act in ways that point to a different society. Well, this is where he thinks of the state as a social relation, right? Not as a distinct set of apparatuses, uh, but as a social relation. So the idea that it might be brittle or fungible in certain uh, conjunctures in certain places and times means that yes you are able to begin fomenting forms of revolutionary governance adequate for a totally different society at the same time as you are like dealing with the reality of our present moment and what already exists does that make sense yeah look it does i think i'd probably be interested to see if you could draw on any of his case case studies to talk about that but you know like you know, things that come to mind would be, you know, there's been times when, say, the teachers' unions have had influence in setting curriculum. Oh, right. Or, or you know, like, or, um, you know, in the 1980s, the beginning of the 1980s, the right was always going crazy in Victoria because the Labor government was always, like, producing funds for people to set up co-ops and things like that. Yeah, so, right, like an you know, all-in-right the, type situation. Yeah, so is is there something in... um in Palance's work where he identifies specific moments of, of that kind of yeah. work? Yeah, so in his book, Classes and Contemporary Capitalism, he goes through, um, so in his later work, he also, one of the other accusations they've at Palance's is that it's hopefully inwards, look, inwards looking or insular, his theory of the state doesn't account for the world system. So in his later work, he started opening that up a little bit more and talking about uh, classes across nation state lines or classes in the world system. And so in Classes in Contemporary Capitalism, he's talking about the relationships between the US and European states um, and how they create specific ruptures and specific, like, tenuous connections um, and state forms in the delivery of a capitalist program. Uh, so that's probably the closest of his work, or the work of his that is closest to the thing that you're asking for. Does that, is that sounding? Yeah, no, like... it does. I'm just trying to picture, you know, I can, because I can, look, I really must admit that, you know, for a long period of time, I was like quite just an ultra leftist. So, oh, yeah. you wait. know, that, 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 that everything had to happen at a distance to the state. Yeah. And my kind of thinking at the moment is I do not know what the, what, the journey from the class in itself to the class for itself really looks like. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have a convinc you know, if communism is a, the movement, I really don't have a vision, a convincing vision of what that really looks like, but I can mm. have a number of different imaginings that goes, oh yeah, I can kind of see how we could, you know, you could have a movement, you know, you can have a class movement. It's fighting battles over here. Some people over there are picketing things, but another section of it are beavering away in some state department. Or... In, oh, right. Yeah, you know, like... Does that make sense? Like, I, I can see you could be pushing for things, but I'm always oh, yeah. worried about the more that you that the state has a recuperative capacity, that when you focus on the state, it ends up swallowing you yeah, in. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. 
and reproduces a state politics within the movement. I hope I'm not leaping too far ahead in the conversation, but no, no, not at all. That's definitely that's definitely that's part of the thing. So this is what early Palancis took issue with Miliband about. He was like, because Miliband's whole shtick was talking about middle managers within the state and who their um, class alignment was going to be with, like who they were going to be advancing the cause of, whether they could, you know, change things or do anything for the left within that. And Palancis was like, don't be a fucking idiot. Like, of course not. That's not the point of all of this. Um, And I think, so the point that you're getting at is that not only working within the state form as it's currently constituted means that you're getting, um, you know, your power is getting usurped by the capitalist state, but also if you're attempting to fill in the spaces between state provisioning or state programs or a state form at a point like right now, like in the COVID crisis, does that just mean that at a later point, the apparatus that you set up or the or the thing that you set up to try and care for people and do social reproduction or or just straight production or what have you, will that inevitably get drawn into the the capitalist state apparatus and used for the purposes of, of capital? Is that is that sort of what you're saying? Yes, yes. And and also I guess as well that mm. um you know d- does a politics does does Palancis's politics and does a the politics you think of in relating to a state immediately mean electoral politics? Of course often you know, the politics of reform do mean electoral politics. And that creates a kind of acting and a kind of behaviour. And also, I guess, um, for me, there's always the concern of, like, what happens if you win electorally? You've got the Syriza situation, right? <laughs> yes. Where, where you have oh. to, you know, you've won and now but you, the state, and it's interesting that you say that there was a critique of Palancis um, being um, insular. Yeah, because yeah. In, in my thinking, I, I, I have a... Th- I've been trying to work out a language that expresses it properly. I think, I I, I think sometimes that reformist ideas think capitalism is more malleable than I believe it is. Like I think mm. capitalism has certain rigid dynamics, and you win a state election, and it enforces you to enforce its dynamics, or you're fucked. Yeah. yeah right? right. So, and, and that's before we get in. We, that's before we get into like a, a chilly situation. Mm-hmm. So, um, they're, they're my concerns about about this. But I wanted to just go back to a line that you use that is really quite striking, okay. which is the material condensation of class struggle. That's the definition. The definition of the state for Palancis? Yeah, it's a social relation, a material condensate of class struggle. What does that mean? It means basically that the state is this contingent social relation that is not a blunt instrument or just like a monocultural thing. So it is... Um, it is a different a different formation a different structure a different way of doing things in different places dependent on the balance of the class struggle in a particular area so that could be like a a spatial thing or it could be in terms of a theme or a topic does that mean if we were winning the state would change yes it would do you think that's true that if we were winning the state would change I think that if we were winning, we would see the emergence of different forms of governance that had real power. Yes. All right. Well, look, that is super. This obviously has massive impacts on how you think we should struggle. Yeah, it sure does. So (laughs) um, before we leap into that, a lot of your work, particularly in this recent article, 
attempts mm. to, I guess, capture the moment in Australia. Yeah. Could you spend a bit of time doing a diagnosis of what you think the current contradictions in capitalism in Australia are and the balance of forces? Oh, I don't know if I can off the top of my head. <laughs> Read the article, <laughs> listeners. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. What did I say? Bear with me. Stay with me, everyone. Um. Okay, well, I mean, at a very top level, I think that we can all agree that this, like, long boom that has been going on for the Australian economy has been stuttering to towards its end for the past few years, and there are myriad reasons contributing to that, uh, including, you know, geopolitics, the world system, who wants the exports, and also, like, within the state itself and the economistic um, relationship that the unions and the political system have means that the concessions that workers got um, got bartered away, you know, in the Accords. And you look at Liz Humphrey's book and the detail around how that particular um, set of concessions got worked out. And so slowly over time, um, workers have had their rights and their pay whittled away. And so we have a really fragile economy in a sense, while at the same time, of course, it looks like it's doing really well um, through continued extraction and then, of course, the property market doing all sorts of things and being financialized. So we've got a really interesting conjuncture. I mean, really recently, the governor of the Reserve Bank was begging businesses to start paying their workers more, to move the wage stagnation so that we could see some more money flowing through the economy. Yeah, right. While he was also (laughs) refusing to pay his own workers more, which is... Of course, really? yes, like they didn't give, and they took him to court or something. They tried as hard as they could and he wouldn't fucking give it to them. Anyway, so the economy is in a really weird, weak position and you're seeing stratification along a whole lot of different lines. Um, and at the same time, you know, the state has been starting, the state and capital, the state capital relation has been moving to create new frontiers of accumulation, like through the privatization of many of the pieces of public infrastructure or the social services that have been uh, the result of this really strong, uh, long boom that the economy had had. So now you're seeing the privatization of things like prisons. Um, you're seeing, you know, like the offshore processing centers are another frontier of accumulation. You're seeing this, the police state just absolutely ramping up. Uh, and so this was sort of my point of departure within the blog that I wrote. Uh, I had started off writing it about climate emergency and basically um, Ian Brough's authoritarian state. So the idea that Australians calling for the state to do anything, like something, anything in the face of, um, you know, the oncoming climate change onslaught and the bushfires of the summer, people calling on the state to just do more, we're not taking into account how the state capital relations are currently configured and how fucking close we are to a full fascist state at this point in time. Okay, let's just let's just pause there because that's a really good point. So um, it seems weird that the six months of fire or however long it was yep. um, ha- have been forgotten mm. about, but that was pretty yes. huge, right? So... We have this vast bushfire crisis and there is certainly a kind of argument that comes out that you hear that the problem is that the government is not doing anything or the government is idiotic or the government yeah. is, is lacks strategy and the government needs to mm-hmm. act, right? Both act to deal with the fires but also to deal with 
um, the causes and mitigation of climate change. So you're saying that that argument is wrong. Can you can you address that? Well, firstly, I mean, the state is doing something as it is not doing something. It is a choice not to do something. That is, yeah, people who are like, they're just failing to act. It's like, no, they're acting in a very specific way. Um, so the idea is that people calling on the state to act in response to crises when the state is already, and this is where Palancis comes in, when the state is already sort of strategically oriented in ways advantageous to capital as opposed to workers, means that the state is likely to go for solutions that are amenable to the strategic interests that it's oriented towards as opposed to the workers. So it's not just a tool that can be picked up for good policy? No, no, no. And this is sort of where the the nuance that's in Palancis that I'm definitely not getting across, I apologise, but the nuance that's in there that talks about this condensate of class struggle, right? So existing struggles, sort of like the, the forms that come as a result of those over time accrete in specific directions and so become more amenable to certain policy things. So for example, when you've hollowed out, hollowed out and inverted commas, reconfigured your state form uh, in the way that neoliberal capitalism has given rise to, it means that all of a sudden your state isn't capable of taking big sweeping action fast uh, on its own terms. It has to apportion that action out to private interests to take care of. So I'd say that that's what we're starting to see, in, or we're not starting to see it, we're seeing this in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Just this just sparking idea is would this be a kind of theory that would explain, say, the Australian state's um, historic alliance with the very specific interests of of mining and coal production that because over the last 40 years there's a particular shape to Australian capitalism where this fraction of capital seems to be dominant mm -hmm. to the economy, there's been defeat of other social forces, mm. that it's not just that the Liberals are a bunch of climate denialist wackos, mm -hmm. but the state itself has is actually a condensation of what's going on out there, that yeah. it's a deeper, more material interest rather than just Scott Morrison's a crazy... Absolutely, a deeper, more material interest is the perfect way to put it like the thing that's been frustrating me recently is the idea that everything is ideology that everything can be explained away by saying that you know discourse has reinforced this ideology and that's why this or that is happening it's like no no <laughs> no you need to look at the materiality of what is going on and in a very real sense like the state has been inscribed and oriented in certain ways over the past couple of decades now and that has really um that is going to dictate our starting point as the left and thinking about how we're going to fight what capital is going to try and do we have to examine the materiality of the issue or the moment as you say oh yeah i look i completely agree i often think that kind of focus on ideology um is really convenient for kind of academics and policy wonks as well because they're oh, suddenly the yeah. heroes of history like yeah if the problem is bad ideas step out of the way i've got my good ideas <laughs> <laughs> exactly you're like no 
fuck's sake, no. Um, all right, so let's move on then to COVID-19 and then your strategy. So this is really quite worrying then if we're in a situation... Uh, we talked about this before we recorded. Like, I'm trying to stay to... I'm doing a lot of shows kind of that are COVID-19 crisis related, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to stay meticulously committed to the fact that I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not good at maths. So yep. I don't have an I don't have a detailed opinion on what is an effective way to deal with um, a coronavirus epidemic. Like I just don't have the that. Yep. But keeping in mind this form of state thinking, how does that make you think about this moment that we're in, where the state has kind of shut down all social activity? You know, eight reasons in Queensland you can leave that leave the house. The capitalist mode of production itself is being put on pause. So that's pretty challenging mm. to think about what that means. Obviously, there's some debate around that and the state is stepping in to compensate on people's incomes. How do we understand the state's behaviour in, in this crisis? What the state has been doing sort of in lieu of big structural solutions is to put us in a holding pattern uh, and to sort of like slowly drip feed us the bits and pieces that can sort of like hold the conjuncture in place without letting any of the contradictions get so great as to completely snap uh, until they can figure out what they're going to do or hopefully that the crisis passes. And I mean, Australia, um, this manifests in specific ways, but I think one of the most obvious examples of this over in the States um, is the way that Donald Trump is approaching the situation um, by just like waiting for something to resolve itself. And it's like, no, you now you've let the conjuncture snap people with no rent relief are now not going to be able to pay their rent. And so one of the ways that society is sort of like kept toddling along is going to go like there are going to be real material impacts from this and it's not going to go well for anyone. But back to Australia, and in this moment, what could possibly be done? Looking at it in a Palancian way, I think it's important to think about the class interests that are sort of hanging out in the wind at the moment, and which ones are most amenable to aligning with a leftist strategy that is privileging the interests of workers. And in the piece of writing I did about this, the first thing I think that needs to be taken into account is how to consciously align workers with small to medium business. Very controversial claim. Like I read that and I was like, that's pretty controversial. So can can you work us through your thinking behind that? My thinking behind that is that they are just one of the most vulnerable groups within the economy as currently constituted. And in this moment, if we are able to unite some strategic interests with them, that is a block that can change the balance of power in some crucial situations. So this is like, you know, an, you're talking about an alliance between the working class and elements of what used to be called the petty bourgeoisie. Yep. Why? So that we can leverage things that we need right now mm. in this crisis. Okay. No, I think, really inter- no I think that's really interesting. Like it's... um. It's quite a, like a, it's a real move. It's a move against kind of class orthodoxy, isn't it? Well, sit out for me, your, your thinking. What's my thinking? I say, um, what is my thinking? <laughs> Damn. All right. So my <laughs> thinking would be that I guess he, that one of the key parts of kind of um, a class movement, and I'm very willing to 
think through how what we would call like sociologically or objectively the working class does not understand itself as the working class. So yeah. even this language is problematic, but would be forming some form of class um, independence. Mm. And that the relationship, if you went into a small or medium enterprise, you would find class antagonism there. Oh, yeah. That you would find exploitation there. And often that the small and medium interest is really just the self-employed manager of the bank's capital? Mm. Or is that your point? Is that your point that, you know, that there's this point of, at the moment, there's a point of shared interest between (laughs) workers' movement, whoever that is, where it's official organisations, the class itself, and the people who run cafes? Yeah. You know? Yeah, basically. And also, I mean, we live in a time of monopoly capital, right? And another thing to think about the Australian economy and the changes that have been happening over the past couple of decades is that it is harder and harder to exist and operating against the, just like the orders of magnitude of scale that capital has at this point in time. And so this crisis could act to clear the decks of a whole lot of small to medium business or petit bourgeois. And that is only going to further concentrate power in the hands of monopoly capital. So it's a, it's a way of thinking through strategy for the conjuncture while keeping your eye on the horizon. It's really, look, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll be quite interested to see how the listeners take up that point. If that makes, I'm sure I'll get absolutely castigated, but yeah, but you, 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 yeah, is. but you don't. You got to. You gotta, if you're not getting criticised, you're not doing anything, right? Like it. Like yeah. at least this. I'm not sure what I think about it, but at least this is an attempt to go. All right, let's let's pose a strategy. I've got more questions that will come after this, but what can you maybe keep on rolling through the list of what you think is the kind of strategic orientation that we need at the moment? Right. So the other points that I made, following on from that contentious point. Uh, that it will be incredibly vital. I mean, at the moment, we're also facing a crisis of care and social reproduction, right? So it will be really vital to consciously foster potential alliances between worker movements and the social movements formed in the struggle to secure the conditions and integrity of social reproduction. So that's basically about trying to, like, another one of the age-old antagonisms within discussions of class, right? Like, how do you deal with heterogeneity within the class struggle? Uh, And so I think we need to be consciously thinking about that and constantly working on ways to, to work through that in this crisis. Um, The next one's a sort of big, big macro thing. So, and I mean, this one's been bandied about in the media heaps, the nationalization of sunset industries. They're being, I mean, you know, everyone knows what, what we all have to say about that. But this is a great time that this sort of feeds into the work that I have done with Tash, talking about the Green New Deal type programs and the potential for job guarantees built around big programs of regenerative and caring work that we need to sort of get our world ready for a climate changed life. Uh, So this could be an opportunity to redirect a whole lot of labor from those sunset industries toward meaningful employment, doing things that need doing. Uh, And then the final point that I made was mirroring that sort of building capacity logic. Um, The burgeoning mutual aid efforts that are going on need to form the skeleton of future permanent state-resourced collective provisioning. So big collective provisioning of social reproduction. And that's sort of oriented towards um, really 
well um, rehearsed debates about care work and the second shift and how we eliminate some of the um, like the, the gendered labor stuff that's still sitting around. How do we do that? By building future permanent state resource collective provisioning and having a job guarantee. So, so what does that look like? Future state resource collective provisioning? Yes, like, indeed. Big. Like we're talking about essentially like what do you do as social reproduction in your house at the moment, right? You need to do cleaning. You need to provide food for your family and yourself. You need to clean clothes. You need to have like adequate time out and about in the world, which we're not getting at the moment, but that kind of thing, if you can provide resourcing, collective resourcing of that kind of thing, then you free up a whole lot of time for the people who otherwise would go to work and then come home and do that provisioning for their family. So discussions about, you know, like the Sophie Lewis kind of abolish the family unit stuff, but thinking about instead of focusing on abolishing the family unit, talking instead about how you build collective frameworks of care that people can be involved in. So does that look like creches on every street, shared kitchens, I think it'll, large allotments? I mean, I think it will depend on the place mm. and the people and what they want. And that's why I say that the burgeoning mutual aid efforts that are going on can start forming some of the frameworks that we're, we're talking about here. I mean, I, I'm not interested in painting a utopian picture and expecting everyone to do what I say, but I'm interested in us being able to resource communities to create the collective provisioning that they need. And I think this moment sort of serves as the perfect kick up the pants to really start getting yeah. going on that. So I guess this is the other point that immediately springs to mind, like the kind of knee jerk action that I have to the concept of nationalization for example. Oh yeah. Example. Yeah, totally. Like the state is not democratic. You totally. know like so this would this would be the the criticism that I've all, that I always have the reformist point yeah. of view that the state is the public is the common good. That's just not, not true, true totally. right? Like as you said before the state is a capitalist state and maybe we'll have that we're accepting that I I guess what in your vision is that there's struggles going on that are changing that condensation so the state itself is changing. But where What's the, the totality you know, of the, that? The, yeah, but also like the like the part of the reason that neoliberal neoliberalism was mm. popular was because there was a lot of legitimate critique previously a lot on mm. the left of the Fordist welfare state as an authoritarian paternalistic yeah, institution definitely. that told people how to live mm. their lives and what you know like we often look back rosily like <laughs> oh you know when before things were privatized you know how your job security and yeah. or whatever but people also had a really alienating miserable Fuck. time <laughs> during during that as yeah, well totally. so it's not a pandation um, so yeah, so where's the like uh, you know where's the question of democracy or self determination yeah. or autonomy? Okay, it's... well I think firstly when you're talking about nationalisation of particular industries at this point in time, it's the quickest way to get a whole lot of miserable shit shut down and redirect resources to things that need doing. However, yeah, um, nationalising things doesn't make them democratic. Absolutely, totally agree. So when we're thinking about stuff like a job guarantee, or even if you want to put that aside, the kinds of work that will need to be done to repair degraded ecosystems, to restore standards of living for, say, aged care for the elderly, that kind of thing. Um, different communities, different places, different groups are going to know what their 
communities need. And so the types of work that need to be done in different times and places should be democratically resolved uh, at a level of abstraction that I'm not sure what the best level of abstraction is. I've had someone suggest to me that old Whitlam era government, like local government, um, there are still local government structures set up that haven't been abolished but just aren't used. So potentially you could direct resources through them. I think like a constitutional change is needed or something, but for the sake of talking it through. So you could take pooled resources and direct them out to those devolved governance structures to figure out what work needs to be done in particular places. Does that get some way towards... Yeah, no, look, it, it does. It does, like, because it, it's the same thing. It's like any kind of, like, you know, um, it's really, it's it's hard to imagine yeah. this stuff. It's like one thing is, like, when it happens, no. it won't look anything <laughs> like this. But, but we need to start yes. having these imaginings as part of the process of getting there, yeah. if that makes sense. But I, I, I think particularly, you know, I can... You know, um, Ali Pennington, mm. uh, Alison Pennington recently had an article in Jacobin where she has like yes, saw, yeah. a critique of nationalisation under, um, you know, current conditions mm. without changes in the in the class dynamic. And I, and I get that. I could see, you know, you could see, like, for fuck's sake, you know, like a, a month and a half ago, would you say Morrison's going to double the dollar? Hell no. Of or, course or not. Introduce, <laughs> or, or, or introduce the jobs guarantee. No. Or, or anything like that. You know, it, I think Virgin at the moment is asking the government for a loan on the basis that if they don't pay it back, then the government gets a share of equity in Virgin. Mm. So Virgin is suggesting its own nationalisation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, if if at the moment in Australia, like the supply chains are not breaking down, like we're, we're not currently in a kind of... In a, free fall. Um, walking dead, like free fall. Yeah. Like, you know, there, there has been short, you know, toilet paper shortages and not everything's in the shops, but there's still plenty of food. Yeah that's in the shops and the power's still on. But if, if that started to break down, I could see the state similar to during World War One or World War Two, na- nationalising industry or, or commanding different industry to do different Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Right? So, like, uh, so nationalisation has gone from um, unthinkable, yeah. like, and who wants to go back to the 50s to something that's potentially on the agenda. So... I mean, I think it's important to know that it will, will never go back to the 50s, right? Like, we'll never have that conjuncture again. We we, we just won't. So nationalisation would be, would present differently at this point in time, depending on whose interests are going to be represented in whatever deals end up being struck. Mm-hmm. And I think Alison's point is well made, you know? It, it, it's the same point that I'm trying to make, or I was trying to make about the climate emergency stuff. Like, don't fucking ask them to do it at this point in time without exerting a whole lot of strategic pressure on them. Because if you if you just call for them to move from where they are now, it will snap towards authoritarianism, frontiers of accumulation that continue to go to the same people that are currently making bank. It's not what we want. And look... I- there's a couple of other points I really want to kind of draw out on this as well. So, um, so Palancis, I assume, doesn't... Because he's Greek, right? Yes. So he wouldn't have forgotten that the state still involves apparatuses of hitting and torturing people. Correct. In this model, how do... Like, so say, say we've got... And we'll get to this in a moment. But say we've got a rising... We come out of this crisis yeah. with a, a rising movement. It's putting forward these demands, which are... Uh, which I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, are about like kind of winning things now to shift the horizon. Like we we want to fight to win things so we can fight to win other things. Yes. Right. P- 
pulling people together, uniting them, dealing with immediate constraints. At some point, you're going to be dealing with the secret services, with the state, yep. with the army. Yep. What does that mean? Um, I honestly don't have an answer to that aside from we know it will happen and we also uh, what what can we do but keep going and maybe someone who is better at thinking through that particular side of things than I can come up with something there but all I have for you is yeah yep that's a real problem and I do not know the answer yeah oh look it's one of the ones the 20th century doesn't really give us much on yeah. right because like i got to think my thinking is like um if you end up in a civil war mm. you're probably fine yeah hard <laughs> because because a it's not clear you can win a civil war yeah. now and what you probably walk out of that with is heavily brutalized and beaten yeah. by you know yeah. by that process yeah. right so like it's almost like you've got to kind of get be willing to get to the edge, but you never want to that's, get there. That's it. And I mean, I think, you know, there's really interesting work coming out at the moment about, you know, the latest jargon, surveillance capitalism. But there's some really cool stuff like Mackenzie Wark's book about, like, this isn't capitalism, this is something worse. Then there's a scholar, an American scholar who's here in Australia at the moment called Jason Sadowski, and he's down in Melbourne now, I think. He's got some cool shit, like, working through the contradictions of surveillance capitalism and how that's presenting here. Um, I mean, I think the most important thing for us to remember is the same lesson that people have been relearning for forever, is that it's this isn't an all-encompassing regime. Like, there will always be points of contingency. There will always be points. There will be ruptures. There will be places where you can push. It's not futile to attempt to work against this system, even if we can accept that at some point the repressive state apparatus is going to mobilise beyond how it is already mobilised to secure the system. So I think I really love these kind of conversations. <laughs> Me <Yeah>. too, man. <laughs> I'm really glad. But there's a, there's a danger of being, you know, kind of armchair generals without armies. Oh, yeah. Right? With this, and, like, one of the things, one of the running kind of criticisms that we kind of get um, with living the dream is when people say, well, when you say workers' movement or when you say we or when you say left, who do you concretely mean? Mm. And, like, I'm trying to get to the point that I, I don't do this, but when I remind myself, I do, that when I say we, it should actually be specific human beings. Yep. You know, like it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, because so with this kind of broader vision that you've got mm. of potential demands, yeah. How do you imagine, you know, say we're locked down for three months, how do you, we're locked down for six months, how do you imagine struggling in this terrain or preparing to struggle to, when we come out of it to begin to put some of this stuff up? I think um, the first thing that I want to acknowledge is that, uh, and it's been great to see some I told you so moments coming through, um, disabled communities have been conducting struggles from, like, from their homes and from places not on the streets for a really, really long time. So it is possible to take part in struggle um, in conditions like this. And we have a huge amount to learn from those communities and it's beyond time that we started listening to them. Um, but I'd say in terms of strategy right now, it is building on the the the, the impetus, the, the, the movement towards mutual aid um, and creating 
very strong localized networks, which is not to try and reify the small, like, um, you know, village communities and things, but is just to say that in these situations, we are forced to move beyond the sort of isolation and individualization that has become part and parcel of our lives and create mutual aid networks. So I think that building from those is instead of just like throwing them down and running away from them, once um, once this has sort of turned into whatever comes next will be really important. Yeah, that, that's super fascinating. Like I must admit, um, for, for me, concretely, like I kind of um, do this, you know, kind of ideas stuff. Yeah, um, yeah very small things at work with often years in between them, then yep. I'm involved in like my local community group, yeah. which is quite, you know, which is quite depoliticized, right? Because it's actually mm. about a, you know, like when we say, often when people say community in the left in Australia, they mean yeah. people who are just like me. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. might share a geographical territory. Yeah. They don't often mean like people who do share a geographical territory with me that are probably wide different from me in, in many fundamental ways. Yes. And the, the community group also is um it's often in practice has a relationship of pork barreling with local and state government, right? Like what mm. you you organize community events, mm. but you also go, We would really like this thing in our park, politician, can you give that to me? Yeah. So, you know, there's discussions now going on in my community group where they're, they're basically like mutual aid. What mm. can we do? How do we do it? Mm. Um, but not happening with the language of the left, right? Ha Which is great, right? Yeah, totally. And I, I, th <laughs> I actually think the amount of mutual aid going on is much bigger yeah. than the formal organisations who use the word mutual aid. Yes, you and know, that's and, how it should be, right? Yeah, totally. And a lot of it is spontaneous, <laughs> yes. you know, based on a whole range of networks. Obviously, in Australia as well, there's a dimension to migration here where yep. often the strongest community organisations are one of migrants who've come over the last 30 to 40 years because we see when generations have been here, three generations, those community organisations start to fray and um, mm. don't really play the role that they do as more recent um, migrants do. Mm. But an interesting thing is going to be the relationship to the state. So there in mm. Queensland, there are now um, two separate initiatives that are state initiatives that are relating to community to mutual aid. Right. Okay. So you know the the Queensland state government has formed the Care Army. <laughs> so it's it's unclear what that is, you know. Yeah, but right. but drawing on explicitly the mud army experience of the floods. Right. You know. Okay. So, well, but of course, but of course, that was um. There was no official state coordination in that. That was people spontaneously going to different areas which had been flooded and doing what they can. Yeah. And then the state providing the big stuff, mm -hmm. right? Like the trucks that could come along and take the rubbish. So but so far all this is is a phone number. It's really unclear what will come next. Mm. And then on a local council level, they're starting to talk about getting all the different community groups on a ward basis and putting them in contact with each other. Right. So for me, it's a real thing about like how much... Um, you, you know, do you have a purist response to this? Like, no, fuck you. Or will be like, um, this is actually probably a way of being effective, but what is the cost of that? I think that I would never take... <laughs> no, that's a lie. I do sometimes take purist positions, but no, I won't take one in, in response to that. Uh, so I can't remember if we've already spoken about this, but I'm from Canterbury in New Zealand, and I was there for the earthquakes, 
And uh, in the wake of the earthquakes, there sprung up the student volunteer army, which was essentially like a massively scaled up version of the thing that you just described. And that has been kept going. And they've now mobilized again in response to the COVID-19 crisis in New Zealand. And I've got good friends who've been involved who were there in the beginning of that and have sort of, you know, handed over the reins and um, watched from afar now or have taken on sort of leadership positions and adjacent things. But I think that there, there are huge lessons to learn from creating those structures and showing people how powerful it is to be involved in those structures, like how they're not disempowered. Like when you were saying, you know, people turn up and they're like, what can we do? How can we help? And they don't, it's only a very few people that it, that ever say, I know what we can do here. I will take the time and do the labor of coordinating everyone. Then eventually we'll get up some momentum and we'll be able to get this thing going. If we can create those sorts of ready-made structures that you can plug into different future scenarios like this and then begin more broadly to bring people into the work that needs doing on the day-to-day to keep social reproduction going, then I think there's huge emancipatory potential Um, However, you always need to keep an eye on what else could come of it. You know, as you say, who knows how that could be subverted. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, just um, how much, I I really felt this during the fires as well, how much people wanted to help. Yes. But there wasn't the, you know, there wasn't the capacity often for the the more formalised organisations of volunteers Mm. to deal with the people that wanted to help. So Mm. as the fires were ending, I thought, oh, you know, like I'm I'm not much of a hero type, but I'm sure there's something in the rural fire fire and emergency services I could do, Mm. right? Yeah. And I contacted them and the response I got back was, sorry, we're full, we can't take any more volunteers. You know, which (laughs) which is really interesting where... um, And that, 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 or, you know, a friend who, you know, a couple of years ago tried to um, work with the SES in Queensland. And obviously to do things, you've got to get various different tickets Mm. to make sure that you're, you're trained enough, but they don't have the internal training capacity to push the people through to get their tickets. Mm -hmm. Right. Or um, I even think about like, you know, who knows what this is going to look like on a hospital level, right? Mm. This could be a really intense time and so many of those staff in those hospitals are going to take it's going to be so intense for them Mm. now it takes you a couple of years to become a trained nurse but you could probably train me in a day how to consistently read someone's temperatures and record it on the door Mm. you know like there's these points i'm I'm probably going out on a limb here there's these (laughs) points where people want to help but there's not kind of the the state as it exists and the volunteer volunteer organizations or Mm. the professional organizations don't have a capacity to to for to for that to go anywhere yes, you know like... yes and at the same time you also want to acknowledge just you know as you were saying it takes years to train to be a nurse it takes years to train to do lots of different forms um of work and social reproduction that should count as work and it's about i think and as we move forward building these mutual aid structures and thinking about collective provisioning it's about starting mm. to write it's starting to like really have the debate about the wage relation in response to this work that desperately needs to be done um, and how we navigate that and think about it, I think, is going to be a huge issue. So so does it? that's quite interesting because, you know, the, the other side of it is, like, thinking back about the 2011 floods, mm. you know, people experience that really as a best of time and worst of times. Yeah. So I think COVID-19 is going to be different because obviously the mortality rate is going to be yes. much higher. Um, and even with the fires, there's something particularly terrifying about fires that floods are bad, but they're not terrifying 
in the same way. But there's a lot of positive memories about the way that labour is transformed in those mass mutual aid moments. And I, even in the terms of skill usage as well, you know, that um, there's lots of things that I'm not good at. There's lots of things I'm not good at. But even even during the 2011 floods, you know, there was a beginning to break down some of that division of labour where people would be like, oh, this is how you do this and go and do it this way. You know, so there was a transformation in skills. Now, like we haven't touched on it, but you know, the great debate, the bo- great debating, bo- de- <laughs> great boring debate uh, of um of the Australian left in two thousand and nineteen uh-huh. was jobs guarantee versus oh, UBI. Yeah. Right. So does that figure into your thinking? Yeah, anyway? I mean, I think it's pretty well known that I'm a job guarantee with a basic income gal. That's my approach. That's sort of like part of the research agenda that Tasha and I spend quite a bit of time trying to trying to communicate well. Um, and thus far, I've <laughs> largely failed to win over any U- UBI proponents. But the basic argument is simply that um, there is always going to be socially necessary labor how do we equitably distribute that how how do we get to it and we think that that has to be obviously uh, you need a basic income for people who either do not want to or cannot work uh, and that is obviously necessary but alongside that we believe that there should be a job guarantee uh, that corresponds to the work that needs to be done, that those big programs of regenerative and caring work that we talked about earlier on, uh, because that work needs to be done. It needs to be distributed appropriately, um, directed by communities in different places to give them what they need. Uh, and importantly, it needs to really deal with the issue of what counts as work or not. And, you know, we all know the, the fundamental debate is about whether you're extending the wage relation or not, or abolishing the wage relation. And our basic position is that you do need to work towards abolishing the wage relation. And part of that is by reconceptualizing what work is so that you can appropriately value what, what work is done uh, and apportion it before you can move to a period of time where there is like a bare minimum of socially necessary work that is done and it's distributed maybe without a wage relation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm a, like, I've always been very critical of that. Like it depends what you, obviously it depends with you, with UBI and with jobs guarantee. It for me, it always depends. What do you mean by this? And what is the, what, yes, is, totally. what is the context that you see it being one in? So, yeah. you know, like I certainly have like uh, supported like a UBI in the imagination mm. that a movement could win this to then go beyond it. Like I guess yeah. my part of my, um, my you know, my, the, the line that I like to use about jobs guarantee is that it's a boring and impossible utopia. And by, by, by that, <laughs> like I, I mean, as it's imagined often by the kind of MMT theorists that what we can do is solve capitalism. Like we can have, you know, we can have the state employing, providing the jobs guarantee and you'll have capitalism without crisis and without unemployment. But I I guess it really comes down to how we imagine the timetable of a movement that's winning, how it's accumulating victories and what that compels capitalism to do. You know, because I I certainly think that um, 
if you think about you know because we've, we've mentioned Liz, hum- Liz Humphrey's work and obviously everyone yeah. mentions Liz, Liz Humphrey's work because it's just so crucial right yes, but totally. one of the things that it addresses with is I guess in the 70s the mainstream and this is around the western world the mainstream of the workers movement failed the crisis that you know yeah. you have a crisis that can be explained in part as an accumulation of our victories big debate there but let's just go with that in part an accumulation (laughs) of our victories capitalism goes into shock right Mm -hmm. and we go well what the fuck do we do you know that yeah and this idea that the more we win throws capitalism into crisis and we need to go beyond right like that because if we don't go beyond we by necessity become involved in the reconstitution of capitalism in a different form and that's you know what neoliberalism in different forms was in in the 80s so in my head it's the same thing with jobs guarantee and ubi the the imaginations that i think are like we can win this and we can solve capitalism or we just have a gentle bubbling out into another system you know like (laughs) oh yeah that's Um, probably got it wrong you know that i i agree with you yeah and Um. uh, and i sometimes think if we like could develop the social power to win a jobs guarantee or even a ubi would probably be ready to go beyond it. Like by by the time you can force that demand out of capital, mm. you might be able to go, actually, we, we want to get rid of that too now. Um, I mean, I think in this moment, we're troublingly close to a UBI being presented as the answer to everything. And that's just what keeps us bubbling along and the conjuncture going for the next wee while. Um, and I, I can't understand the people that are for the UBI and don't acknowledge the function that it would play in this moment. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, like the, the obvious, like the punchback that I get every time is people being like, how dare you deny this possible thing that would make life better for the most vulnerable because you're aiming for some utopia. And the answer to that is obviously that in this moment, in this moment of extravagant crisis, we can do so, so much better than a UBI it has to be like if they're willing to give you that they are going to be willing to give you a lot more and rather like you shouldn't be willing to take it you shouldn't be willing to like, have it given to you you should fucking take it for me I think this also comes into a question of honesty and movements right like um, yeah I think it's I totally get that we might be going okay here are some things we want to fight for you know maybe we call them directional demands um <laughs> Is that but, something you prepared earlier? No, no, I, I took it from like Keir it out of the other yeah, day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, Keir Milburn uses the term because I always hated the kind of and the few trot listeners that I have react against this. Like the the way that I understood like the Trotskyist transitional demand was basically you lied. Like right. you say we're going to fight for this thing, and when it doesn't work, you go see told you capitalism is crap and like (laughs) i don't like i really feel the problem with both ubi and job guarantee if if we think that ultimately the things we we need to fight for and go beyond Mm. you've got to be honest to everyone in the movement about that right you know where there's often is like no 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 this is where people's ideology is we'll get that and then they'll realize later and i'm like people don't like being lied to you know and and it does really create that division between like the revolutionary he knows and the class who are morons yep you know and that's no good it's no good no absolutely not okay so we're we're just hitting over an hour is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would really like us to 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 engage with here uh i don't 
think so. Is there anything that you would really like to chat further about? Oh, no, I thought it was really good. And I think it's a really great and really interesting um, presentation. So oh, thank you. I think it's the, the this kind of work is really, like, I, I'm not sure what we can do in this moment, right? And I think that idea of like posing, reading the situation, posing some ways forward, focusing on the mutual aids that are possible, mutual aids po possibilities, having the conversations is really crucial. And I really appreciate that you've put that document forward and you've made the time um, to to have the interview today. If people are interested in your work, mm. how do they find you? They should find me on Twitter and then they'll be able to find everything that I've ever done from there. So it's Anna underscore Sturman is my handle. Brilliant. So uh, this has been Living the Dream. Thank you very much, Anna. <laughs> if you've been listening to this show and you thought, oh my God, that's great or oh my God, that's terrible, <laughs> please get involved in the conversation. Um, uh, we've got more, you know, if you, I'm quite happy for uh, Living the Dream to have more of a debate going on as well, but you've been listening to Living the Dream. I hope everyone is doing well. Bye bye. Do you want to say goodbye? Bye bye. Anna? <laughs> Sorry. Bye, everyone. It's been real. Stay safe. You sometimes wonder and you sometimes wonder. 10,000 Deutschmarks to hand me over. Oh, you sometimes wonder and you sometimes wonder. You can make a living sometimes wondering.
you can make 